Father God, creator of heaven and earth and all that is in us, we come to the altar and bow down in humble adoration and gratitude for who you are and all that you have done on our behalf to draw us into a powerful, loving, trusting relationship with you, the living God. You are sovereign, savior, shepherd, and king. You are the kinsman redeemer. You are the name above all names, the king of kings, the anointed one, holy and true. Lord, we confess that we have wandered away from your holy commands and statutes. 
Forgive us for our compromise, complacency, and compliance as laws and policies were gradually passed that eroded the biblical and cultural values that are the foundation of America and its constitution. And so now, Lord, we live in a country that is divided and morally bankrupt. As your word warned us, good is now seen as evil, and evil is seen as good. Woe to us if we do not repent and turn from our wicked ways. Holy Spirit, lead us into a united repentance personally, culturally, and governmentally as a nation. Hear now our silent prayers. Thank you, Lord, that you hear the prayers of your children when we cry out to you and you forgive us of our sin. Father, we thank you for our fathers here on earth. We know you place them perfectly and specifically in our lives. Bless our dads today in a special way. Release them from any guilt they may harbor for mistakes they have made. Complete any healing of past hurts or regrets that might hinder their parenting or grandparenting of our precious children. You have designed what a family should look like, as well as the specific roles that you have ordained to a mother and a father. It is written, train a child up in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Grant our dads godly wisdom and spiritual guidance to lead and direct their families in your path of love, truth, courage, obedience, righteousness, and joy as testified in your word, the Holy Bible. We ask these things in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, welcome to LJCC. We're so happy that you're able to join us in person today. Happy Father's Day. It's great to see everybody. As you arrived, you received a bulletin, and on it you'll find the Connect card and a prayer card. If you're joining us for the first time today, please take a moment to fill out the Connect card to let us know you're here, and we'll help get you connected. We invite uh, you to fill out your prayer card so we can be praying for you during the week. We have a team of prayer warriors that are here to, to help in that uh, anything, anything you have need prayer for. Uh, you can drop off the cards and your tithes and offering envelopes in the boxes on the wall on your way out in the foyer on your way out from the service. At this time, I'd like to uh, invite Pastor Steve Murray up. Have a wonderful morning. Thanks, Craig. Oh, my gosh. Um, I appreciate our worship team. Thank you so much. I love the way they lead us in worship, and they do it such a, at such a high level. It allows you not to focus on them, but to focus on the Lord. It's such a great gift, so thank you all. Well, it's Father's Day, but, oh, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's Father's Day, but every day is the Father's Day. Um, I love the way it says um, uh, in Hebrew, Hayom This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So every, every day is the, is the Father's Day, and today, uh, specifically on Father's Day, we, uh, we uh, recognize and, uh, we, well, first of all, we recognize you fathers, you look very tired, and then um, we also recognize you fathers as taking on a huge, big, giant role, and uh, we're going to reflect on that a little bit, not just for fathers, but for everybody, and um, the secret of being a good father is just simply paying attention, isn't it? And really, that's the secret of being a fully developed human being, just paying attention, being intentional about your life. So we're doing this series uh, talking about designing your life in Christ. Now, it might sound a little pretentious or presumptuous to say, oh, you're so special, you design your life. Okay. But no, designing our life is simply good theology. It's saying, uh, as Paul said, I want to take hold of that uh, with which he has taken hold of me. I want to live into the power of his resurrection. I want to appropriate from him uh, everything that I could not achieve, but I've been given as a beloved child of God. Uh, that, one, that first song we sang talked about why should we benefit from the reward that goes to Christ for taking the sins of the world upon himself? Uh, because immediately having risen from the grave, what does he say? It's for you. 
Uh, what did he say on the cross? It's for you. Uh, I'm here for you. And so all of a sudden, this opens up amazing and wonderful, uh, sometimes bewildering uh, possibilities and opportunities to design your life. Because if Christ has given us what we could never achieve on our own, uh, what would be the point of designing your life? Well, it's the appropriate response to um, that. It's saying, all right, well, what would that look like for me to take responsibility for me, to take charge of my life under your lordship, under your sovereignty, under the grace and within the grace that you alone can provide. So all of a sudden you realize every one of us here uh, are beneficiaries of that. Every one of us here benefit from Christ's life, death, and resurrection. His claims about who he is and what we need. His character about being able to be the perfect sacrifice uh, on our behalf before the Father. His resurrection from the grave. His ascension into heaven. His promised return. Him releasing the Holy Spirit to minister His grace. All of that sets us up to respond. And what we call that response is um, discipleship. Basically learning how to be a disciple of Jesus. And and to put a a, a kind of a fancy spin on it, it's about designing your life. Why? Because design is in and of itself intentional. Design simply says, what's the problem? What's the opportunity? Uh, What are the materials? Uh, What's the context? Uh, for me to respond accordingly and appropriately in this situation. So when you walk into the doctor's office, he or she will start with uh, a series of questions probably. What are you feeling? What's happening? Sometimes it's obvious. You're walking, you're bleeding. Oh my gosh, let's see what this is. But they have a very orderly uh, way of responding to the issue in front of them. They don't just say, you know what you need? And start prescribing medicine or signing you up for surgery. I love it when people go to see an orthopedic surgeon. A few, a few of you here have experienced this recently. You go to the orthopedic surgeon, you say, my knee, I think I blew up my knee. It's, it's, somebody told me it's probably an ACL tear. It's, you know, um, I'm in agony. And oh yeah, right. Well, let's start with an analysis. How did you do it? When did it happen? What do you do? What don't you do? Uh, and then at the end of the day, they'll say, you know what? Here's what I, I prescribe. Based on what you've described and your aspirations for what you want. I want to get better. I want to be able to run again or surf again or whatever. Here's what I prescribe. And then you have to go to that physical therapist. You have to do some exercises. You have to do some icing, etc. And then what happens is you, by that design, originating with your physician because of this desperate situation you found yourself in, you get to take responsibility for you. Now, you can have a perfect surgical outcome and a lousy recovery. Why? Because you didn't do what they told you to do. This is the the thing that drives everybody crazy when they've had a really serious surgery. The doctor comes out and says, well, it was a perfect outcome. And the person wakes up, and after the painkiller wears off, they're going, I'm in agony. What was it? What, you said it was a perfect surgery. Yes, the surgery was perfect. Now what you need to do is to engage in a, in a rehabilitative process that we will guide you through, we'll make possible, because of what we've, what we've done and what we will continue to do for you. So this is maybe a, a way to get your head around this idea of designing your life in Christ. That every one of us has this capacity because of the power that Jesus has released into the world through His Holy Spirit guided by his word, supported by his people, we get to then say, what would it look like for me to make some decisions and choices to align my aspirations, the life I want to live, with some beliefs and some behaviors that would support that? How's that going for you? And if right now you're saying, gee, I'm, I'm kind of out of sorts. I'm, I've hit a point where I'm, I'm miserable. Everything is great, but I feel miserable. Or you know, I keep trying for these things and they're not, they're not working. Or, you know, I'm bored. Um, whatever it is for you. Or I've achieved all my goals and now what? I'm a little bit panicked because I think I've been focusing on this stuff and now what? Uh, if you're a person who's moving into a, a different season of life, transitions are always challenging for everybody. Uh, maybe there's been some reversals and you're saying, how, how would I get my life back? The life I have been living. And so all these become issues Uh, that require us to say, uh, what do I aspire for? Healing, health, recovery, discovery, more of the same in a harder economy, in a more challenging world to do it. I don't know. And maybe you don't know. You're sorting that out. 
But I can tell you that those aspirations are God-given. God's put it into our hearts to yearn for a better world in us and around us. C.S. Lewis said, we yearn for that better world because there is a better world to yearn for. That we're moving towards something that will result in a new heaven and a new earth and a new you. In the meantime, we're part of that movement. Uh, Paul calls it the first deposit of, of who and what we are in Christ. So how's that going for you? Do you think of your life as something that you would intentionally design? Now, by design, I don't mean control. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. Jesus warned about that. He said, you know, don't be that person who said, well, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to build bigger barns. And, and, he, and the, the, in the parable, uh, the man is told by the Lord, you fool, you know, you're, you're not going to live through the night. Don't pretend that you can control anything. But know absolutely to the core of your being that you can make decisions that align with God's purposes for you because of everything He's done and will continue to do. The big bane of the American church is passivity. In the American church, we sit back and wait for God to do something. I'm just waiting for God's will. Well, waiting on the Lord is a biblical notion. But waiting on the Lord means I am engaged in doing God's will. I'm not waiting for something to happen. I'm waiting as in I'm paying attention to the Lord. So when we talk about designing your life in Christ, we're saying, are you paying attention to the Lord? And what's the context uh, within which you're doing that? We talked a couple weeks ago about, well, what's most important to you? What are your big values and priorities? What are those lofty aspirations about who you want to be and what you want to do in life? Uh, we talked uh, last week, uh, Scott Schimmel was here. What, who's your primary community? You have a primary community. It could be your, your immediate family. It could be dear friends. It could be colleagues. It's those people that have some level of influence and impact in your life. Who are those people? Now, you might not see them a lot. You might not spend a lot of time with them. When you're a little kid, you're immersed in your world of peeps that you see every day at school or you play with, you're on teams with. Uh, that goes through high school, even in college. You have this built-in community. But post-college, good luck with that. As you literally move through life, as you move through different ages and stages, you bond with different little communities along the way. Uh, if, if you move into a new community, you better have a, a cute dog or cute kids. Because as you walk that little dog, you, hey, you start meeting other people's dogs uh, around your neighborhood. You, if you have kids, you're in school. But at some point, it gets harder and harder to say, who are my peeps? So maybe that's the first step for you to think, who is my community? Is it the people I'm in a life group with, hopefully, uh, etc. Today, uh, we're asking another big question. To whom do you listen? Because designing your life is not a solo, independent, isolated enterprise. You know, I'm going to design my life, then I'm going to present it to the world with a big aha moment. A big voila, see it moment. Rather, it's this conversation. We believe in conversations around here, that God invites us into a conversation, a personal one with Him, in relationship with Christ. To be born again is to be coming into a very intimate, personal conversation with the living God. And immediately we're called into a community of people, the body of Christ, the people of God, this holy temple that God is, is constructing through His people in which He inhabits through His Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. Before, long before it's an institution, it's a movement of God's Spirit among people. And yet, because of our, of our overweening independence, our individualism, we hold back. And therefore, one of the key things that helps you design your life and not feel perpetually frustrated with the fact you can't seem to figure it out is that we're not in the kind of authentic depth conversations with people that allow us to benefit from the fact that God's Spirit works through other people, even as it works through circumstances. Because you and I are incapable of accurately interpreting everything we go through. We see it from a perspective of pain, self-pity, uh, maybe promise and potential, but what we need are, are, are people giving us feedback, constructive feedback about what they're seeing. Now sometimes it comes in a form of criticism. And that's painful. But the best of it comes, even when it comes with a critical point of view, it's feedback that is constructive and allows us to see some things that we otherwise wouldn't have seen. You're not alone in this notion of designing your life in Christ. And again, it's not some fancy-pantsy thing where you think, I'm just so special, I designed my life. If you grew up in the Midwest uh, and, and you think about the culture that you grew up in, 
Wisconsin or Michigan or Minnesota or anywhere in the middle states on the East Coast, and you said, I'm going to design my life. People would scoff at you. go, who do you think you are? to? De- you don't have a life that's worth designing. Who do you think you are to uh, think that way? Or it's written off as wishful thinking and daydreaming. But what it is is saying, I am being held accountable, responsible by the Lord himself to respond creatively, personally, to what he has initiated in me. And if I don't respond, there's nobody to blame but me. Do you resonate with that? If you're waiting for God to do something in your life, just be sure you understand what it means to wait on God. It means to lean in, to pay attention. What did he say? Ask, seek, and knock. Ask and it will be, uh, you'll, you'll, it'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. Are you doing that? So discipleship is this active engagement in the purposes of God. Again, what Paul said, I want to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. Uh, and so this is not a fake it till you make it, or if it's meant to be, it's up to me. This is not a, one of those things. Uh, it's better than that. It's us being in this conversation and this living partnership with God. You might say, well, he's done all the work. It's not much of a partnership. He's done everything. It's by his grace. Yeah, but he takes our effort and does something with it in the context of his grace. You're saved by grace, and you're sanctified by that ongoing grace working out in your life because we're making the the appropriate response to it. We're reading the Word. We're worshiping God. We're trying to figure out um, what our gifts are and how we can use them to glorify God and bless people. And so to whom do you listen? Uh, And this word listen is a massively important word all the way throughout Scripture. Uh, The big word in in the Old Testament is the word Shema. And you might recognize this from Deuteronomy 6, uh, the big Scripture there for Israel. This is Israel's kind of a a touchstone uh, truth. This is what Moses told them. And and what what, uh, every every, um, Israelite would understand, that this is the core piece Shema Israel, Adonai Echad. Listen, listen up, Israel. The Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the rest of that passage, as you know, if you've read it, goes on to say, and talk about these things with your children. As you go along the way, as you wake up, as you go to sleep, as you eat, as you do whatever you do. It's not haranguing your kids. It's rather having a conversation with them, finding ways to not just be in their face, but to stand with them shoulder to shoulder and say, look, what do you see there? What do you think is going on there? It doesn't feel like an interrogation. It feels like a conversation. How are you experiencing this? What does this mean to you? Those are, those are the kinds of questions that unlock people's curiosity, affirms their capacity to have an opinion, to have a point of view, to process what they might be feeling or not feeling, to be aware that maybe there's something going on that they don't see, it's really fun when, it, when a parent stops telling a kid what they should know, what they should feel, what they should see, and starts asking them, hey, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? Otherwise, we're stuck in what's called naive clarity. Naive clarity is what we think we know based on the experience and life we have. Naive clarity is when a kid does something because they've seen an adult do it, but they don't quite know what's going on. It's like the little boy who takes a razor and tries to shave when he's four or five. Cuts himself. Now a parent could say to that kid, that was so silly, why did you do that? And miss the whole point. Versus saying, hey, what made you want to shave? Because I see you shave every morning. I don't want to be just like you. And so what we have in these conversations with our children or with other people, our peers, this iron sharpens irons thing, is it allows us to move beyond naive clarity. Oh, I thought you ought to like me because I did this and this for you. And only to hear that person say, no, I like you because I like you. And whether or not you do that for me or not, I like you. All of a sudden you go, oh, I have a larger perspective of my likability and their willingness to like me no matter what, right? Uh, every small kid in elementary school goes through a moment when some of their friends are getting divorced. It's usually about third grade. You get a little wave of divorces. And kids then are freaked out. Are my parents going to get divorced? And their naive clarity is either I should be a better kid so they don't get divorced, 
or if they have any kind of tension in the home, I wonder if that's the precursor to a divorce. So this naive clarity is perpetuated throughout all of life. We all have naive clarity. I can't tell you how many amazingly successful people, highly productive people I've talked to, when I asked them, why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you get in a life group typically? And they go, I don't know the Bible, I don't want to be embarrassed. Okay, the whole point of being in this group is that nobody really knows the Bible, so they're reading it and talking about it together. It's okay not to know anything. And if they say, all right, I'll take that risk, that step, they're taking a step toward designing their life around God's Word. And they might not have the language to describe it that way. All they're thinking is, I'm taking a big risk to go to a group of people and feel like an idiot because they don't know the Bible. But what happens in that, in that conversation they start to have is they realize, I'm moving beyond my naive clarity, assuming that everybody else knows the Bible and I don't. Or assuming because they've been reading it, they know it better than me. And all of a sudden, these people are inviting me into a conversation about stuff I've seen for the first time, and I get to have an opinion about it? <clears throat> I, I, love, I love the way Paul says it to the, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 14. He says, you know, if you're with a brother or sister in Christ, and they, they come up with some idea theologically that is off the wall, don't crush them. Just give them room to process what they're thinking. One of the big impacts in my life was as, as a teenager processing the Bible and processing Jesus, reading the Bible with no help from anybody, just reading it to be open-minded and to be on the defensive in case everybody tried to lay it on me. And I met this adult, and, and uh, I had no idea that he'd gone to seminary. He could read it in Greek and Hebrew. I didn't know any of that. He was just a guy who said, hey, you read the Bible. How's it going? Oh, fine, thanks. My naive clarity was fine. I think I pretty much got it. It's a little confusing, like it's repetitive. I've, I've read the same stuff four times because oh, yeah, there's four gospels. What's a gospel? Those four stories, you know, that after the named after the guys. Oh, okay. So we go into this conversation. They said, "Hey, well, so what are you reading?" I said, oh, "I've been reading this thing out of Matthew, and uh, Jesus is speaking, and he feeds all these people, and uh, it's pretty interesting." And he said, "What do you think's going on?" I said, "Well, obviously, <laughs> well." If you don't know, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> he, he inspired these people, and they, uh, some kid starts to share his lunch, and everybody got so inspired, they started sharing their lunch. And it was just like Woodstock. And he said, yeah, that, I guess that could happen. He said, one th- and he said, one thing I found helpful reading the Bible is to try to read it in context. What happens before, what happens after, and where does that, whatever you're reading, come in to that flow. Uh, and so he leads me through very gently. Let's read what happened before that. And let's see what happened after that. And it's funny, Jesus seems to be talking about the fact that he has power over nature itself. And he's not just another teacher. He's somehow something more. And also out of that conversation, he's not manipulating me. He's just helping me understand how to move beyond naive clarity about how to read the Bible. It can be a very complicated book, right? And all of a sudden, like these lights are going on in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I had reduced it to something that I could control and set aside. Yeah, more of the same, people having an inspired moment and sharing something. Instead, it gave me a whole other large world view of who Jesus is. So that's what these conversations do for us. That's why the Shema is so important. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the Bible? Don't read that, it's a waste of your time. I read, uh, I've read two, um, I've read two uh, not just books, but I've read two theologians in the last couple of weeks. Uh, both have massive credentials, both have huge influence in this country in their respective worlds, one in ethics and one in um, Old Testament. They've both gone through personal faith crises, but they don't present that way. They present as people who are authorities in their field. And what they do, though, um, and I, I don't know them, so I don't know what the real motivation is. I'm, I'm assuming it's out of fear and social peer pressure. They're trying to relate to a culture that might render them irrelevant if they don't say the right thing. And what I notice is they are subverting the content of God's Word. They're subtly but effectively subverting the content of God's Word and leading people to make conclusions about things that I don't think are accurate conclusions. They're keeping people trapped in naive clarity. Naive clarity as dictated by our culture. This is the way the world works. 
And I know that because recently I was in a conversation with a couple super you know, wonderful people, highly accomplished people. I mean, so that's not that's an end in itself. It just means they're, they're capable people, smart, amazing people, uh, and likable, really great people. And they're, they're pretty young in their faith. And they've been exposed to these writers. And they're concluding that the Bible really doesn't have authority to speak to big social issues. Now, I'm in that Romans 14 mode. I'm not going to jump on them and say, well, that's wrong. You don't know what you're... I wanna, what I want to do is have a conversation with them. Not, again, manipulating them, but to help them maybe see a larger perspective. That when that guy said that word doesn't mean that, that word does mean that. And this guy is motivated by social peer pressure in his own world. Yes, he's a big deal. But he's a big deal, but he's a person. And right now, in his personal world, there's a bunch of people giving him pushback based on their views, and he doesn't want to be dismissed. So this conversation becomes super important. Who are you listening to? Are they people who are going to engage you in God's Word and in in an analysis of life as fellow travelers trying to get it right? Or are they going to engage you as people so defended in a point of view that they want to shut down anything that might threaten that? So this is why designing your life becomes incredibly important. If you're not, somebody else will. If you're not designing your life in Christ, walking with Him, and He says, come to me and learn from me. That's what it means to design your life in Christ. And so the Shema then is a super important word because it says, listen, focus, pay attention, obey, do. There's no word for obedience in the Old Testament. There's no word for obedience. It's, it's the word, only word for obedience is the word Shema. In all of its forms, in a dative tense, in a past perfect, a future perfect, you know, whatever grammatical context you put this word in, it always means some version of hearing and doing, listening, responding, obeying. And so, are you a good listener? To whom do you listen? Who listens to you? I mean, I love the way in Exodus chapter 6, God speaks to Moses and says, I've heard the groaning of my people. I've shema. Uh, the, uh, you know, in that case, it's uh, shamati, uh, shamati, the people. I've heard the people. So listening is powerfully integrated into everything in God's word. Being a good listener is the beginning of knowledge. Why? Because another way it says it throughout the Psalms and Proverbs: the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's not to cringe before God. The fear of God is to be overwhelmed by His magnificence, saying, "I really got to listen." I've really got to pay attention here. There's something powerful here, and it makes me super uncomfortable because it's so big. But somehow I'm drawn to it. Are you a good listener? To whom do you listen? Who listens to you? If you're not a good listener, woe to the people who are listening to you. If you're not listening to God, what are you giving other people? Who are the people you have listened to most for guidance, for counsel, for encouragement in your life? Probably your mom and dad. And if they weren't credible, you figured it out at some point. Now, I don't mean perfect, I mean, or fallible. Everybody's fallible. Nobody's perfect. But at some point, kids get old enough to realize my parents are not honest. My parents are duplicitous. My parents are hypocritical. They, they adamantly say one thing and do another. It's not that they're just you know, imperfect people who are constantly correcting and recovering. Those kinds of parents are magnificent parents. Why? Because they, they confess, hey, sorry, I didn't handle that well. They're, they're parents who repent. You know what? i got to do that differently. Let, let's see if we can come at this in a fresh way. And also the kid sees that authenticity and says, whoa, my parents they don't even know the word yet. We'll say my parents have integrity. They're congruent. The inner world and the outer world are pretty close, and they're constantly adjusting accordingly. What caused you to listen to people? Probably because they spoke with authority and some capacity of empathy. They made you feel comfortable in their presence enough to, to receive what they were going to say, even if it was tough. I thank God for the people in my life who've given me some, some hard feed, feedback, right? Hey, listen, I've seen this and I'm concerned about it. The ones who just wrote me off or were, were insulting or put me down made me feel bad, but then I just hardened myself to them. It's those people who spoke with empathy and authority. They made me say, I want to know more. Speak more to me. 
And they don't have to be perfect in that. They might lose their temper, they might be, be sarcastic, but they quickly recover to say, hey, I really care about you and, and I want to see you succeed. What internal voices do you listen to? It's easy for every one of us to have a critical audience. The critical audience is the one making sure we're going to catch you doing something wrong or calling it out when you do something wrong. And what happens, that could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be a coach, it could be another kid, but over, over the course of a life, we internalize this critical audience and it becomes our own voice. There you go again. You are such a loser. You call yourself a Christian? You'll never amount to anything. Ugh, you'll never get that right. Do you ever have a critical audience echoing in your head? All of us have some version of it. And so again, to whom are we listening? Is that the Lord's voice or is that the voice of the devil? Is that a, a, a jealous, envious, or just antagonistic and miserable person's voice taking out their stuff on us? Or is that a voice of compassion and reason and understanding who is really trying to help us get it right? So the next question is the obvious one. Do you listen to God? Because ultimately, if we're not listening to God, we have no way of filtering out all the other voices, including our own. Maybe your voice sounds like this. What could possibly go wrong? I know exactly what to do. If they just changed, everything would be fine in this relationship. Do you listen to God, though? And if so, how do you listen to God? Of course, we listen to God uh, through His Spirit um, speaking to us. And sometimes people who don't even know Christ yet are saying, something is tugging at my heart, I'm not sure what that is. But the more we, we come to know personally the Word of God, we start to be able to sort it out. Oh, that's the Lord speaking to me. That's the Holy Spirit convicting. That's a word, it's a theological word, convicting me. What it means is the Holy Spirit is turning a mirror on me saying, look, this is who you are right now. Conviction isn't coming up with false charges and yelling them until you finally believe them. Nathan, the great prophet, comes to David and says, David, a man had all these sheep and a guy came to visit him and so he went and stole the little one, little lamb that was like a family pet next door and he slaughtered it and gave it to his guests. What do you think about that? That's outrageous. Somebody needs to hold that person accountable. That person should pay for that. Ah, you are that man. And so unfolds the episode with Bathsheba and out of that comes Psalm 51, repentance, powerful, restore the joy to my salvation. We start to listen to the Word of God and, and we realize even when it's critical, it's not critical as in destructive, it's critical as in helping me reframe and understand reality. Shema is so powerful. So um, how has listening to God impacted you and influenced your life? Spend some time on that. This is going to help you get into that designing your life in Christ mode. Hey, who should I be listening to? I should be listening to the Lord and other people. But if I don't do it that order, I'm going to try to accommodate myself and please other people. If I start with the Lord, I can then filter out what I hear from other people. Does that square with God's Word? Is that a right now application of God's word that I wouldn't have seen just reading God's word? Because this person is speaking to real time in my life in the context of God's word. This is really helpful to me. So how has that shaped your thinking, your decision making, your values, your priorities, your commitments? I want to give you one uh, example out of the scripture of a personal interaction that, that embodies this. That is absolutely an application of Shema in the New Testament. Uh, because listening is so essential for designing your life in Christ and developing in Christ, if we don't see these things for what they are throughout Scripture, we won't see them as easily in our own lives. Because you have people speaking to you, just like Paul spoke to Timothy. There are, there are some people who are like the Apostle Paul in your life. Do you recognize them? God's going to bring some people into your life who are going to be like Timothy, for whom you're going to be able to give some content and context of their own life. Are you ready for that? So here we are, 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 13. Uh, Paul starts by saying, Paul, he's writing, he starts, he's writing in a formal, normal first century way of writing a letter. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, 
Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Why would he start a letter that's a personal letter so formally? Well, he's writing both as the apostle to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, but he's writing from the deeper context of I'm like a father to you and you're like a son to me. So it's a beautiful picture there. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, here's my authority, to Timothy, my dear son, here's my empathy. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. That not melt your heart if you get a letter from somebody saying, you know, I've been at this a long time. I've got a great heritage of people of faith. And one of my great privileges is praying for you every day. When I first came down to La Jolla from Orange County 26 years ago, um, a few people, God used a few people randomly to do that. I, I walked in this place called Harry's Coffee Shop. It's like a, 100 feet from my house. And this wild man comes up to me and goes, hey, my name's Harry. It's my place. I'm like, don't hurt me. <laughs> you know? he's, just, he's a big personality. He goes, hey, I just want you to know something. I'm praying for you every week. I said, wow, thanks. Fantastic. He goes, yeah, well, so I'm from New York, and uh, my mom uh, was a Baptist, and her favorite person was Billy Graham, and uh, she just drilled it into me you know, to, to know Christ, to walk with Christ. I met my wife. She's Catholic. We've been married for you know, decades at that point, six kids, seven kids, whatever it was. And he says, and her favorite person is the Pope. So my two favorite people are Billy Graham and the Pope. And uh, I'm going to pray for you, because you, God brought you here to do something uh, important for this community, so I'm going to be praying for you. It's powerful, unsolicited. A guy called me up, another, another a pastor, who I'd met, but I didn't really know, and he is this epic person, I mean, just a very uh, impressive physically, personally, but just an amazing guy who's now deceased. And he said, hey, I just want you to know, I'm going to be praying for you every week. And um, he had been the pastor at the church that I was serving decades previously. Before that, he started a church up in Bel Air. And his father was at one point the pastor of the largest church in the country. They started Forest Home and, and influenced many leaders. So he said, I, I was a pastor there where you're serving. I was there for 10 years. It was the hardest 10 years of my life. And I'm going to be praying for you. Whoa. Other people came up to me say, I'm going to be praying for you. At some point I thought, what have I gotten myself into? All these people are praying so strenuously for me. I must be so in over my head I don't even know. This must be so hard I haven't even thought it through yet. But, and, and they were right. <laughs> it was. But um, Timothy is hearing this from Paul. I thank God. And night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Now now he's going to start speaking into Timothy's life. And we start to understand you know, from one side of the conversation maybe what was going on in Timothy's life at this point. Competent, called to be the pastor of this church, one of the, the second most powerful city in the Roman Empire. And so you think, well, God brought him there. God's going to give him everything he needs, right? Yes. But he's still going to have to be thinking about what am I going to do with my life in the context of this. So he says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He starts to give Timothy a context for his own life. Timothy's life, I'm, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Hey, just like I have a long heritage of this, you do, Timothy. Your grandmother influenced you spiritually, so has your mom. I, we don't know what's with up to the dad. And then God brings Paul into Timothy's life. And so he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. This is a really sophisticated theological way of saying, hey, it's, it's, it's time to give up your pity party, get off your end, Stop moping that you've been dropped into a really hard place where your life is threatened regularly. It looks overwhelmingly odds against you. 
But guess what, Timothy? God called you. God's going to equip you. Get on with it. But he says it in a very tender way. Fan into flame the gift of God. That's a design your life comment. That's a design your life statement. Fan into flame. Wait, if it's God's gift, why do I have to fan anything? Because you get to participate fully in your own life. Are you participating fully in your own life, Timothy? Are you a spectator in Ephesus? And things are just happening to you in Ephesus. And you have no control in Ephesus. And you hope that something will work out in Ephesus. Or are you saying, God's ahead of me in Ephesus. A bunch of people have laid the foundation for this church. Priscilla and Aquila and maybe other people, Paul. And now I'm, I'm, I'm going to just dive in and trust that God wants me to swing for the fences. Love people where they are. Speak the truth no matter what it costs. I'm engaged. I don't know if I'll fail or succeed. It doesn't matter. I'm here fully committed to God's purposes for me. And my design of my life is to simply show up and learn as much as I can what it means to be his representative in this place, inhospitable as it is. You at all relate to that in your life right now. Does this have any, any kind of you know, echo in, in maybe in the way you are seeing your culture in your life right now? You're not a victim, but you're definitely feeling like, whoa, there's a lot here that I can't overcome and control. He says, you know, you can do this because I remember when I laid my hands on you and a bunch of other people did, we commissioned you for this. We believe that God would give you what you needed. You just need to get out and, and, and get in motion so he, you know, he can steer the car. He can't steer if you're not moving. And so he says, God has, uh, does not make us timid for the Spirit of God gave us, for the spirit God gave us, does not make us timid. That is giving us an excuse to pull back and go, ah, it's too much. Of course it's too much. God will always give you more than you can handle. To say that God will never give you more than handle is incomplete, inadequate theology. It gets part of it right. When, when people say, God will not give us more than we can handle, what it means is, God will not give us more than we can handle because He's with us. God will always give us more than we can handle. If your life is easy to handle, you are not paying attention to God. You're not listening to Him. You're playing it safe and saying, God, that's for somebody else. Uh, I prefer safety. I'm I'm risk-averse. My life is just the way I like it. Don't ask any more of me. It does not make us timid. It gives us power. Our power, His power. Love, our love, His love. That made real in us. Power made real in us. Self-discipline. What does that mean? Self-discipline is just another way of saying, I listen. When the trainer says do this, I do what the trainer says. I'm stopped, I've stopped trying to do life. I'm now training to do life. I listen to people who are saying, you got to do this. you got to study this way. you got to achieve that. These are some small benchmarks we have to hit. That's what self-discipline is. It's the steps I take to develop inner strength, to, to achieve purposes that I absolutely believe in. Self-discipline feels painful sometimes, inevitably. But it's a worthy kind of pain. It's not wasted pain. It's the pain that comes from saying, I'm moving towards something that's worth moving toward and giving my best effort. And that's why Paul can write to the Colossians and he says, I struggle with all his power which works within me. I'm operating on his power, his love, the discipline he provides if I'm only willing to engage. And so he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. It's a hard time to be a follower of Jesus, Timothy. I know that. But don't be ashamed of it. Why would you be ashamed of it? He's, giving the, he's, he's saving the world. He's giving people what they desperately want and need, even if they reject it. Why would you be ashamed of that? Embrace it. Design your life around that. Don't distance your life from that. Join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. A holy life is not just a religious life. It's a life lived by design. I intentionally worship God. I intentionally read His Word. I intentionally learn to pray. I intentionally engage in conversations. It's by design. I choose. I schedule it. I do this on purpose. That's what design is. It's an on-purpose response to the real 
lived world. He called us to this kind of life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It's not a new idea. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, a messenger. I have been appointed the role of saying to people, Shema, listen up. This is what God wants to say to you. You are a herald. You're not supposed to be talking people in or out of anything or winning arguments. You're simply saying, hey, have you taken time to listen to God? He has something he wants to tell you. You're a herald, like Paul. And he was an apostle, one who was sent, and he's a teacher. And then he says, and that's why I'm suffering. It's not going that well for me either. So designing my life in Christ isn't some magnificent statement of, ta-da, I finally got it all together. It's saying, I'm willing to, to suit up and get in the game. I'm in the arena with Christ, and it's really hard. It's costly, but it's worth it. And that's why, Timothy, I'm writing you this letter. Because if I wasn't experiencing this, I would have no integrity or credibility in writing to you. So let's suffer together as we design our lives in Christ. This is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, that day when it all comes together. A new heaven, a new earth, a new me, a new you. And so he says, what you heard from me. If he was writing in Hebrew, he would say, what you shemad from me. Keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Our world is in desperate need of sound teaching in Christ Jesus, by people who have designed their lives around Christ Jesus, who have submitted themselves to Him, who are learning what it looks like to keep that pattern, a very dynamic pattern, by the way. It's not a rut. It's a road. It's a way. It's not linear. It takes you all over the place. But it's, it's a pattern of sound teaching. So let me wrap up by saying this. Uh, this is fantastic fatherly counsel, isn't it? Don't you wish you had a father who could do what Paul's doing? Maybe you have. Maybe you're blessed. You've had a father who could speak to you with theological wisdom as well as just the wisdom of the world. Don't quit your job until you got a new one. You know. But who can put it in a theological context? If you have a father who thinks and frames things theologically, you are very blessed. How about you becoming that kind of father or mother, man, woman, friend, employee, employer, boss, whatever? It's fantastic counsel. It's intentionally customized to Timothy's needs. He's speaking to Timothy in his situation. He's speaking very specifically to, to Timothy, drawing on all this universal truth revealed to us by God and his work in Christ. And it makes sense, right? Because fathers protect their kids, they provide for their kids, they prepare their kids, uh, they pray for their kids. So telling your kids how, to, how money works and how time works and how to plan and manage their lives, that's all part of being a father because you're preparing them and you're, even as you're providing for them. You protect them so they don't fall into situations that are bigger than they're ready to handle. You're praying for them because you realize you can't go with them everywhere. You've got to pray with them uh, before they leave the house every morning. Put your hand on your kid and say, Lord, be with her as she goes to this day. Help her to understand that you're with her. In your name I pray, amen. And when they're little, you get to hold hands and walk to school. Pretty soon you get to just walk to school. Pretty soon, don't walk me all the way to school. Pretty soon, I'm fine here, I'll just walk out the door and I'll see you later after school. No matter, you get to pray, you get to provide, you get to prep, you get to protect. Uh, you get to help launch this kid in life. That's what a great father does. And no father I've ever met feels like a great father. Every father I've, I've met, I've ever known, my own experience always feels a day late and a dollar short. But fathering is about influence, not control. It's inspiration and formation, not exasperation. 
Fathers exasperate when they try to control their kids. Tell them what to feel. Tell them what to think. Fathers free up their kids to grow uh, when they're influencing them and having these conversations to prep them to handle their own life. And so as fathers, as we listen to the feedback our kids and their moms give us, the more we'll get it right. Have any of you seen this movie, King Richard? Uh, It's about uh, Serena and Venus Williams and their dad, Richard. And um, I don't know how accurate it is, the story of their life, but this movie is powerful. Uh, I was riveted on on the plane watching this this movie. Um, Powerful. But one of the best parts about it was that you know, Richard has this whole plan to help his kids get out of the hood and avoid all the dangers of the hood. Um, and the hood could be in an upscale neighborhood or it could be in inner city L.A. Hoods are defined by what things can undo you. Beverly Hills is a hood. La Jolla is a hood. When I think of the hood, it's a place where there's danger lurking everywhere. He wanted his kids to be prepared for that. So even when they became on the edge of success, he said, don't be, don't be taken in by this. At one point, before uh, her first match, professional match, uh, a guy walks in and says, we'll give you um, $2 million to sign this contract right now. She's never played a professional match. But, after, but this is only for today, because once you step on that court, this deal's off. Now her coach, the best coach in, in the country at the time, is saying, sign it. This is, don't miss this. This is what it's all about. Go for this. And everybody else is going, that's a good idea. And the young girl looks at her dad, and her dad just looks at her and says, what do you want to do, honey? She goes, no. Everybody, not the mom and dad, but everybody around her was so disappointed with her. Six months later, she got a contract for $12 million. She knew the timing wasn't right. Her dad knew it wasn't right. But that, that was a resolution of an impasse that previous to this, Richard had been driving so hard, planning her life, designing her life, that all of a sudden she was lost in her own life, felt locked out of her own life. And finally, his, his, and she's saying this to her dad. He's not hearing it. Finally, the mom says, hey, hey, do you understand what's going on here? And she confronts him and says, this can't happen. You can't treat this kid this way. It's her life. You've done everything you can do. It's been beautiful what you've done. Because he starts to go, yeah, but I did this, I did that. Of course you have. Fantastic, but don't do this. So this is, this is what it looks like to be a father, a mother, anybody who's influencing other people. If you're designing your own life and saying, what does it look like for me to be fully alive in you, Christ? How can I help other people do that, especially my kids? It allows you to sort through the feedback you're getting from your kid, from your spouse, from other people saying, hey, this is good, but this is too much, or you need more of this. See, this is the conversation that allows us to listen from the, from the Lord listening, other people. And as we're designing our life, our life ultimately is, is designed such that we can serve other people in Christ's name. At this moment in history, there's a crisis in listening. It's wrecking havoc everywhere. You know that. And we don't have to agree, but we desperately need to listen better in order to understand more of ourselves, of what the Lord is doing in us, about what's happening in our world. So by design, Paul is lifting Timothy up to Christ. How is your life designed to lift people up to Christ? Starting with your own kids, family members, friends, people that you're responsible for at work. Even if you can't talk about Christ, how do you lift people up in His name? I'll leave you with this. Listening is a core strategy in designing a life for Christ. Listening. Listening is a core strategy for designing a life in Christ and developing a life for Christ. How is that going for you? Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd help me be a better listener, that you'd help each person here to assess where they are as effective listeners, humble listeners, responsive listeners. Continue to speak your Shema into our lives, Lord. Shape us through life experiences, through people like a Paul in our life or the Timothys that you bring into our life. Call out of us, Lord, a life that we didn't even know was possible as we, under your tutelage, under your sovereignty and by your grace, design our lives in you. 
We pray this in your high and holy name, even as we commit all fathers to you on this particular day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, wrap up a time worshiping the Lord. Uh, if you want to contribute, you can put some money um, in the box or send us a check or stocks or what well, I mean, whatever, however you want to give, give. Right now, it's an offering to conclude our worship service where you offer your life to the Lord. So it's not about money right now, it's about you. So as we continue to worship Him and get ready to receive a benediction and go on with the day, uh, use this time as you sing, as you listen to music, to offer yourself to the Lord in a fresh way. Where do you think He needs to meet you? Where do you want Him to meet you in your life right now? I believe in the virgin birth.
Jesus comes again for I Well, if we can pray for you before you leave today, go right out around the corner to that lovely prayer garden in the back. There'll be people that will say, how can I pray for you? And uh, if you don't want to tell them what you need prayer for, just say, pray for me. They will. If you have a particular need for yourself or for somebody else, some situation, they will pray for you. Uh, it's powerful. Let people pray for you whenever you can. Today's a good day. Anything we can do to help you uh, start a relationship with Christ, uh, Re-engage in a relationship with Christ. Go to the next level in terms of your engagement with God and his people. We would love to be a part of doing that. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can even ask or imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Father's Day, all you dads.